You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Alethea Contis. Hello, dear friends. I'm Dave Robinson. And I'm Justin McCumber, filling in for the soon-to-be-a-father, Brian Humphrey. <laughs> and you are listening to a very special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity for us to sit down with some truly remarkable people and explore their craft, trying to understand how they do the amazing things that they do. Indeed. And Justin, let me just say before we roll into this, thank you so much for being my wingman for this episode. I am I am Twitterbated beyond description to have my illegitimate love father of podcasting <laughs> sitting beside me here at the mic. Thank you, sir. Oh, I'm glad to do it. You asked me a couple of weeks ago to do it, and I, I couldn't, and I hated that I couldn't. I was so glad that this week was on a, a day that I could, so oh, I'm glad to be here. Yes, and such a day that you're joining. Justin, sit back, relax. Let, let, me, let me tell you a bedtime story, all right? <laughs> let me get my chamomile tea. There you go. Excellent. Settle in. Here we go. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who loved stories. She was named after a character from the TV show Kung Fu, and her father read to her every night while she was an infant. Of course, until she was three, at which time she read to him until he fell asleep. One of this little girl's grandmothers sang nursery songs to her and her sister, while the other grandmother bestowed upon her a great tome of the unexpurgated Grimm and Anderson fairy tales. The little girl reveled in all the stories, finding particular delight in Snow White and Rose Red and The Goose Girl. Now, when she was six years old, she discovered stories were not just found in books, but could also live on the stage. Such a wonder captured her imagination. She didn't just trod the boards of theater, she danced across them. Then, at the age of ten, she was given the task of writing a poem. An octet of rhyming verse later, and suddenly the world was transformed. She would be a writer. And she wrote and wrote and wrote. Anything and everything was the palette into which she dipped the brush of her imagination. But alas, the world failed to see the wonder of her words. Her theatrical endeavors, however, led her to being the teenage star of a local PBS miniseries called Pass It Along. Now, this was encouraging, and she proudly informed her parents that if her writing didn't provide for her livelihood, then her acting would. Her parents were less than enthusiastic, and informed the girl that she would not squander her many gifts on such hobbyist frivolity. She loved her family very much, and resigned herself to pursuing some of her many other talents. Interestingly, in spite of her love of all the stories, her grades in English were less than stellar, uh, excelling instead in math and science. She graduated college with a degree in chemistry, but when her father tried to get her a position in the laboratories of Southern Carolina Electric and Gas, the sterile white walls and clinical precision of the environment sent her fleeing into the night and into the welcoming arms of a bookstore in the mall that was looking for help. 
Now, she worked many jobs in her life, but the stories were never far, swirling and sparkling about her like snowflakes on a winter's morning. She worked in a library and was a buyer for a major bookseller. She convinced a Tennessee publication to start including book reviews that she would write. She attended Orson Scott Card's literary boot camp in 2003, attended monthly meetings held by the local Romance Writers of America, and joined an online writing community called the Codex Writers. Now, during this time, she conceived the notion of the alphabet as a community of letter personalities and wove it into a children's picture book called Alpha Oops, The Day Z Went First. Published by Candlewick Press, the tale was a delight and was followed up with Alpha Oops, H is for Halloween, and soon, someday, please, oh gods of literary journalism, will include Alpha Oops, X is for Christmas. And thus it began. Since then, her short fiction has appeared in Realms of Fantasy and in the Intergalactic Medicine Show. She co-edited the 2006 science fiction and fantasy anthology Elemental, that included works by Arthur C. Clarke, Larry Niven, Joe Haldeman, Kevin J. Anderson, and others. She is a book reviewer for Intergalactic Medicine Show. She's the co-author of Sherilyn Kenyon's Dark Hunter Companion. Her debut YA fairy tale novel, Enchanted, has won the Gillette Burgess Children's Book Award in 2012. She's done multiple collaborations, including with Eisner-winning artist J.K. Lee, uh, The Wonderland Alphabet, and The Diary of a mad scientist garden gnome. Some fun facts about our guest host. She makes the best baklava in the world. She has a cast iron gnome bought on sale at Target named Seamus. Her sister was featured in Vogue. Her father was interviewed on the Discovery Channel. Her godfather's face is on a fish album. And her grandfather was a pirate. Her favorite Disney character is Belle from Beauty and the Beast because she's a bibliophile martyr with an irrational love for her family and a penchant for beasts who used to be bad boys. She was once chastised in a letter from Marion Zimmer Bradley to never use a pseudonym. Ladies and gentlemen, princess, goddess, force of nature, and New York Times bestselling author, please welcome to the big chair at the round table, Alethea Contis. Alethea, woohoo! Thank you. Oh my gosh, that was so beautiful. I want to cry. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed. Was it accurate? Was it close? Were we? Were Will we? Will you please put that on Wikipedia? <laughs> <laughs> I have I, the best life ever. You do. You are awesome. Uh, and so, Alethea, genuinely, I know you have so much going on. Uh, uh, we are so grateful that you you've made the time to join us here. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I do. It's it's a bit overwhelming, but it's a good problem to have, I In, guess. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And and let's 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 not mince words or waste any time. Let's get into our 20 minutes with Alethea Contest. I'm just gonna set the timer here so we try and stay on time. Ah! Good luck with that. Um Alethea, I, I, I want to ask you, and I realize this has been asked of you many times, but I'm wondering if we can delve a little bit deeper. Uh, uh, looking around the world today, looking at, of course, Enchanted, the marvelous YA book, award-winning YA book of yours, uh, and at popular television with Grimm and Once Upon a Time, and, and so much of the fairy tale modality is suddenly, it seems to be crowding into the public consciousness, and they're gobbling it up. And I, I, I know you've, you've quoted many times Tolkien's uh, observation that, that you know, fairy tales are a sure thing in the marketplace. 
But why is that, especially nowadays? Why do you think the public is so hungry for for the lore of fairy tales these days? Um, you're right. I have been asked this question a lot of times. And thankfully, because I've been asked that question, it's, it's given me a lot of uh, great ideas and great answers to it. I, everything goes in cycles. Vampires, you know, they leave, they come back. Um, <laughs> fairy tales, they leave, they come back. Every writing teacher is going to tell you to write what you love. Because even if it's not popular now, by the time your craft is caught up with you know, the, the zeitgeist, it's going to be popular again. So fairy tales have just come back around. It's their time. Um, I, the most recent time I was asked this question, the answer I gave was actually because I think that the social networking and, and the popularity of Facebook and Twitter and everything today is in a way virtually bringing back the oral tradition. So fairy tales are so born of the oral tradition, they're almost like, you know, the blogs of, of you know, Germany and, and the Dutch and the Italians of back then. Right. And I just think that voice uh, carries a lot. And perhaps that's one of the reasons we embrace these archetype characters. That's intriguing. I hadn't thought of it that way. But Isn't it? I yeah, know. I you love that I get asked the concept. same question over and over, you're forced to think about it different ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think you may have hit on something there, something that, that, that's worthy of exploration. But, um, uh, and let me, let me ask you this. This is, this, is, this is a craft question, Lethia, sure. and then, then I'll, I'll turn it over to my wingman, Justin, so he can, he can pump you for information as well. Um, but I'm curious, in your perspective, what do you think is your greatest asset as a writer, your greatest gift, your, the, what, what, is, what is the mojo that you uniquely bring to, to the craft of writing? And what do you do to, to foster and nurture that, that talent or that gift? For me, I think actually my greatest strength is the performance side of things. Um, I, you mentioned my acting back when I was a kid. And that sort of, the acting and the writing sort of came together all at once back, you know, between the ages of 8 and 18 and made me who I am. So when I approach my writing, I approach it from, you know, what's my motivation of this character? Am, <laughs> am I, you know, who am I? Do I smell bad? What do I sound like? <laughs> you know, how much do I weigh? Do I like myself? You know, and every single character, I put myself in their head as if I was about to go on stage and play them as a character. So you have to really connect with those people before you start spouting words. But then when the words come, they're so natural because that's just who the character is. So my strength has always been dialogue. I grew up at the movie theater. You know, that was just, that's my strength. Uh, description has been my hardest, um, my hardest facet that I needed to work on. But I've had many, many years in which to do that. <laughs> How, how do you how do you work on that? I mean, I, I you're not alone. I think in the, in that challenge of of making a, a balanced, effective description. What what have you done to to try and and shore up or reinforce that that skill? There's a, and I, I wish I could remember who said this originally, but um, some teacher, scholar, author said that three sentences should be enough to describe everything, anything. Wow. Three sentences. Okay. So. If I fall back, and I think about poetry when I do this, or if you will, Twitter, because you have to <laughs> get short and sweet and express everything you need to express in 140 characters or less. So you need to do that to move the story along. You can't just dwell in the 
beauty of something, unless it's important for you to dwell in the beauty of something, and then go for it. But if you dwell in the beauty of everything, everything gets lost in the forest. So <laughs> pick your battles. That's marvelous. With all the people lamenting how, how Twitter has been the bane of human language and discourse, you have come out as a voice in favor of Twitter as a tool to refine your descriptive skills. This is a landmark day. <laughs> <laughs> That's, well, and you actually have done, uh, didn't you do a, a, a Twitter novel or a Twitter literary event of some kind? The, the Diary of a Mad Scientist Garden Gnome, it originally started out as a story, if you will, for Thomatrope, which was a Twitter magazine. And it was a you know, couple lines in less than 140 characters. And it started out, Diary of a Mad Scientist Garden Gnome, day four, and talked about something about a freeze ray gun. And he said, could you turn this into like a month-long serial story? <laughs> so I actually wrote the story in an Excel spreadsheet to keep track of my character length and the, the number of days. It was strangely the easiest way to, to do that and see all, of the, see all of the story laid out in one. And then I gave it to Janet Lee, who illustrated each day for me. Oh, as wow. just sort of a self, a project before she, you know, became famous and won an Eisner. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and a and a completely different way of thinking about story. Sure. For one. And a great exercise for writers who want to to try and break out of of whatever mold they're in and become very expressive in a very tight framework. That's outstanding. Well, what you're saying <clears throat> reminds me of Drabbles. Uh, have you ever heard of those, Alethea? Uh, it sounds familiar. A, a drabble is a story that is 100 words long, no okay. more and no less, but it must have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I've only written a couple of them, but when I did, I found them to be amazing tools in teaching you how to tell a story with as you know, a, a little excessive verbiage as possible. And I know that my own personal journey as a writer has been the one of learning and the beginning thinking in the beginning that the more words I use, the better, to now realizing that words tell your story, but they can also be an obstacle to Absolutely. your story. And so you have to clear away all that unnecessary verbiage to get to the heart of what you're talking about and the story you're wanting to share. And so hearing you talk about um, writing these short stories and really kind of honing the word usage down and getting your descriptions simple and to the point really speaks to me now as a writer because I think far too many of us fall far too in love with the words that we use and we think that if we wax poetic for a moment and get really Tolkien with our descriptions of people and places and events, the more words we've used then the better it must be. More writers need to talk about, no, that is almost entirely the opposite. So <laughs> yes. it's nice to hear you say that. Yes. Yep. However, I'm currently in the revision of the second novel in the series that starts with Enchanted. And let me tell you, I wish I had overwritten that so it would have been easier to edit. Oh, really? Your first post. draft yeah. is a little sparse? Enchanted originally was about 107,000 words, and it ended up about 74,000. So I cut a good 30,000 words from that book. <laughs> but it is so easy to cut from a book <laughs> than it is to cut and then go, oh my gosh, now I have to write 20,000 more words to fill in what I screwed up. And yeah. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Alethea Contes after this brief promotional break. 
It was raining in Tinseltown. A hard rain that washed the trash into the gutters. And some of that trash talks. Sings like a canary if you lay down enough cabbage. Or shove a Roscoe in his gob. Benny the Goose was a small-time grifter fresh out of the caboose after doing a three-spot for bracing the wrong mark. I slapped a sawbuck in his mitts and made sure he saw I was healed before I asked him, Where is it? Benny wasn't a sap, and my reputation as Big Charlie's button man gave me a whole lot of pull on this side of town. He spilled like a round-bottomed jug. It took some legwork and a few rounds of hot lead, but eventually I glommed what I was looking for. A letter that every high pillow in L.A. had his torpedoes out looking for. I could foist it for some serious berries. But before I did, I figured I should read it. For adventure from a bygone era, the letter read, Tune in to Protecting Project Pulp, a weekly podcast of classic pulp tales guaranteed to get your pulse pounding. You can tune into the thrills of Protecting Project Pulp starting Tuesday, July 17th. Visit their website at www.protectingprojectpulp.com for more information. Protecting Project Pulp, where adventure truly begins. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Alethea Contis. Well, and that raises actually an interesting point. As you, as you go through, I mean, this is, as you say, Enchanted was, was a seven-year journey in exploration, but now with, is it Hero? Hero. Hero, the, the sequel. You're, you're working with a much more compressed framework. Um, you've gone through the first draft for the sequel, and now you're going back and working through that second pass. Right. What did you find in that first draft that needed shoring up? What, what, was, what were the things that you're finding yourself time and again having to go, ooh, I need to do this or I need to do that? <laughs> it was less of me finding it myself than it was the three-page edit letter from my editor that made me cry <laughs> and made me throw things and made me really upset for two days and then made me sit down and go, okay, Alethea, now you have to fix all this. <laughs> <laughs> because it was really just, me talking to hear myself talk, as Justin said. Um, and I needed to clear up a lot of things and to make a lot of things simpler. Um, I also have a tendency to have a cast of thousands. I don't know if this comes from Sherilyn Kenyon or Shakespeare, but I <laughs> love to talk about people. And so my books end up having a lot of people. And this family, the Woodcutter family, has six da- or seven daughters and three sons. So just this one family is complicated enough. <laughs> then you have the rest of the world that exactly. has to interact with this family. So I, I have to make it logical, but I have to also keep it simple. And considering it's a YA novel, I have to remember that the goal of the publisher is to have a novel story about a girl and a boy falling in love, the end. <laughs> so It's just that simple. <laughs> Ultimately, that is the story that I have to keep coming back to and I can't get sidetracked with. But her brother went off and had this really great adventure. So uh, when, you, when you sit down to write the, the first draft for the third book in the series, which I think is inevitable, yeah. um, what are you going to do differently? Um, it's, it's funny because it, it really is a learning process. I like the fact that I had I was forced to blow through the zero we'll call it the zero draft because it was really crap but I was forced to blow through the zero draft of hero in about two or three months okay and my goal is to actually make beloved 
book three, um, <laughs> my nano project this month, which I obviously can't get to until I finish Hero. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I, I really want to do that. I want to just, just barrel through all the way to the end. Don't worry about word count. Overwrite if I have to. And then I have a year. I have a year to go back and look at it and think about it and stew about it and change things, you know, where I'm not under this crushing deadline and I'm having to ignore emails and, you know, cancel right. appointments and things. Well, and let the subconscious work around that framework that you've built by having a complete story arc you know, yeah. brilliant or not at least you have the arc there and then your creative mojo can start fleshing out that that framework exactly excellent excellent justin did you have a, com a question for alethea well i did want to ask her you know you're on the roundtable podcast which is all about an, a writer bringing their idea to a group and then having a group discuss it I know a lot of writers who absolutely hate this idea because they feel like by exposing their idea before it's ready, it, it won't be, it won't look as good as if they had kept it to themselves or they have this foolish notion that their ideas are precious. And so if they put them out there, then anybody could steal it and write their book and go on to fame and fortune. Luckily, though, I've personally found and a lot of people have found that by bringing your idea to a group and making writing a community effort, the book ends up being better because of that. Are you also a believer in writing as a group activity? I think there are pros and cons to it. Um, I tried that with the Codex writers, actually. I started out that way because there were a lot of writers. In order to get into Codex, you either have to have some, a story in a professional publication or have experienced an um, audition-only workshop like Clarion or Odyssey or the Orson Scott Card Workshop. So the writers were already of a higher caliber. But even within that group, um, when you have someone critique a story for you, you learn which ones are, are keeping your voice and telling you what's wrong with the story and which ones are completely trying to rewrite your story the way they would have written it had it been their story. Yes. Right. Um, and that's, that's difficult. Recognize, recognizing that is difficult at first and then accepting it and responding in a way that's not going to be insulting to that writer is also very difficult. Um, but it's a learning experience and you can learn how to do it. Um, Mary Robinette Kowal is amazing at doing this. I have taken part in her Google Hangouts where she reads aloud a story that she's working on and pauses in, in places and has people make comments. Wow. And she, yeah, she actually also posts um, password protect posts her novel as she's writing it and gets feedback from folks and it's, you know, a handful of people, and these people are going to buy the book when it comes out. So it's it's not a sales issue, um, but she really gets some great feedback from them and works on her novel using that feedback. I wish I could be at a place like that, and maybe one day when I'm not being rushed to write a novel, <laughs> I will actually be able to do that because I think I think it is valuable. I I really do, and these are the readers who are going to be reading your book, and these are the folks that are going to say, um, you know. She took off her shoes right there, and then she took off her shoes again. Um, you may not want to do that, <laughs> unless she has four feet. So <laughs> That would be bizarre. Yeah. Be bizarre. I did have one question for you, Olivia. Okay. Um, as far as fairy tales go, and, and Dave brought this up earlier, um, I, I don't want to blame it on, on my gender, 
but I never really grew up too much with fairy tales. I never read them much, and nobody really read them to me. I think my only real exposure to fairy tales is what came out of you know the Disney animation studios. Don't get her but started as, on that. <laughs> but as I've gotten older, I, and I've seen fairy tales kind of show up in, in different media and venues, I've learned a little more about them, but it wasn't until I read... Uh, a comic book series by Bill Willingham called Fables Mm -hmm. that I really came to appreciate what fairy tales um, say about us as uh, a civilization, as a people, but also what they offer children and to adults. Now that fairy tales do seem to be becoming a bigger and bigger thing and they're finding their, their way into other even other genres I've seen, and in, 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 there's an anthology that's being worked on that's a Western, not a Western, it's a steampunk fairy tale. Uh, and I've even started giving some mental work to a, a Western fairy tale anthology called A Fistful of Fairy Tales. <laughs> but fairy tales are going everywhere. What are, do you have any personal favorites of people's takes on fairy tales or like either a TV show or book? comic books, anything like that, that you personally go, they're handling this right? Um, I actually, oh, this, this drives me nuts because I, I wrote, I was asked to write an article for the Huffington Post. I'm like, yay, oh my God, this is amazing. Wow. Uh, for when my book came out about the 10 or 11, like my 10 or 11 favorite fairy tale movies or ones that I thought were the most successful. And the day my book came, the day Enchanted came out was the day Marie Sendak passed away. Oh, oh God! You got so everything huge. got preempted, and this this article never got published. And it's a shame because it was really fun, and I got to you know talk more about Tolkien, which is always good. <laughs> and uh, we're house authors, you know. He's also with Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, so we're like we're wow. buds. Wow! Holy shit! Isn't smoke. that awesome? Hanging out with Tolkien, baby. Exactly. <laughs> um, while writing this article, though, it, it occurred to me that Pan's Labyrinth. I'm sure you're familiar with that one. Oh, oh my yes. yes. I, I write um, to it sound. Are you familiar with the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, The Little Match Girl? Yes. Where she lights yeah. three matches, and then at the end she lights the match, and this beautiful scene happens, and she kind of walks into the scene. and But she's really actually dead. Right. That's, a, that's her death moment, her death vision. Right, because Anderson really needed to be on Prozac, the poor man. <laughs> some some sort of uh, emotional uplifting medication, yes. Yeah, yeah. The Little Mermaid died. Little Christmas tree dead. Yep. Red shoes, exactly. So, <laughs> but it occurred to me that Pan's Labyrinth was, in a way, a perfect retelling of the Little Match Girl. Oh wow! Because she creates this entire world to get away from this horrible reality that she's living in. And at the end, it's kind of up to you as to whether or not she's just died and become a victim of her world or whether she's transcended into this amazing, magical, imaginative place that she created. That's intriguing. I hadn't even looked at it that way. That's, yeah. that's inspired. Yeah. And it makes so, perfect sense. It really does. I was, I was very fascinated by that. Very, very fascinated. I also think as far as Disney retellings, I mean, obviously I love Belle. But um, <laughs> I have to give the highest awards to The Little Mermaid because in order to retell that story and make it a happy ending, <laughs> they had to do some major work. <laughs> major, yeah. major work. And that was one of my favorite fairy tales. And when I heard Disney was doing it, I gasped because how do you retell that? 
<laughs> by rewriting it. <laughs> exactly. And I think they really did a phenomenal job. And you throw in a singing crab. Yeah, and exactly. Calypso, yes. come on. Yes. Can't go wrong. Ellen Macon and Howard Ashman were a pretty amazing team. <laughs> well, Alethea, let me, we're, we're running out of time here, but I, I, gotta, I, I have one more question I want to ask you. Um, Kurt Vonnegut uh, said something that has always kind of stuck with me, uh, and it was, write to one person. Uh, uh, if, you're, if you write for the entire world, your story will get pneumonia. Um, and I paraphrase a little bit there. But the notion of when you're in that flow of writing and you're making word choices and evolving a scene and a character and a story, um, frequently when I'm writing, uh, I will have not a specific individual in mind, but a composite, uh, a, a sense of this type of person that I think will enjoy this story. And I was curious... Do you write to one person, not necessarily a specific person, but is is there a personality, uh, an individual personality that you find yourself trying to appeal to as you as you craft your tales? Absolutely. Oh, okay, Um, cool. Number one and upfront, I write for me, and I don't write for me as Alethea, the thirty six year old princess on the internet. I write for (laughs) Alethea, the twelve year old girl who just books consumed her. I write the books that I wanted to read when I was 12. The, you know, Diana Wynne-Jones and Edward Eager and Lloyd Alexander and Robin McKinley and all those other folks on my bookshelf. And I write to be one of those books on my bookshelf. Um, when I'm writing and I'm trying to tell the story and the words aren't coming the way I want them to come, I write, I pretend I'm sitting at the table with my family because we are a bunch of storytellers. And I think if I was going to tell the story of these people to my family, how would I tell it? Okay. I know the story inside my head, but how am I going to tell it to my family, you know, quickly and succinctly to move the story along and make them laugh and get dessert? Because <laughs> that's very important. Exactly. So those are the two in my mind while I'm writing. Those are the two things that I'm probably always cognizant of. And, and are, you, are, are you aware when you look back, are, do, do you see that influence? Do you see that, that focus in your stories? Um, I don't know. Mostly when I look back, I think, oh, my God, I actually wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> do you think then, my God, I'm brilliant? Or, or do you think, Sometimes, oh, okay, I, good, good. When um, I've, <laughs> I will admit, I've listened to um, Catherine Kellgren's narration of the Enchanted Audio three or four times now. <laughs> Because okay. she is amazing, okay. and she delivers some of the lines, and it honestly just shocks me. And I think, wow, that was brilliant. Somebody else must have written that, because that <laughs> could not have been me. <laughs> I think a lot of writers do that. I certainly do when I pull out something that I looked at, that I wrote you know, a year or two ago. It's like, damn, that's good. And Justin, yeah. I know you've done that too, right? Absolutely. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. But well, I am brilliant. But that's true. And, and See? That, that's why you're here, dude. And and dear friends, speaking of time, uh, uh, sadly, the, the timer before me was visited by its fairy godmother and turned into a pumpkin and rolled off, pulled by a bunch of mice. So it's dead, gone, and and we're out of time. Uh, so but we could keep doing this for so very long. Alethea, uh, this, this has been charming, delightful, and wonderfully uh, informative. Thank you so much for making the time and, and sharing so generously with us. We really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much. And uh, happy holidays. Yes, indeed. Happy holidays. Because you know some of our listeners are, are, are listening to this podcast as they drive off to, to whatever, whatever family gatherings or festive holiday events uh, are going before them. So, so yes, definitely happy holidays. Um, and thank you to Justin McCumber. Justin, thank you for joining me for this edition of 20 Minutes With. I appreciate you being, my, my, being at my back, my strong hand on my shoulder, sir. Oh, it is a pleasure to be here, man. <laughs> awesome. And dear friends, thank you for tuning in. As always, you complete the cycle for us, and we are so grateful for that. If you had as much fun as we did during this delightful conversation, uh, uh, please feel free to yield to those pleasurable influences and, and spread the word. Let the world know that the round table is out there delivering writerly goodness to all the good boys and girls. Uh, one way you can do that is with a review out on iTunes. We always appreciate that, and thank you to those who have done so. Uh, a comment on the post is always welcome, and and so many of you have done that. And it really just continues the, the conversation after we hit stop on the record button, and that's always cool. Um, you can find us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast, or drop us a line at the table at roundtablepodcast.com. Now... I know that you're all jazzed and sparkly after spending 20 minutes with Alethea, but kids, stay tuned. In just a couple of days, uh, we're going to have Alethea back, and we are going to workshop a fabulous story uh, uh, and transform uh, a, a raw, nascent idea into literary gold. So do return for that. Uh, but there's still a couple of days to kill between now and then. Justin, any, any suggestions on what our listeners might do between now and then? Just look out for flying reindeer. Yeah, really. Duck! <laughs> Not flying ducks. Duck, flying reindeer. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, and I know Brian, were he here, would would admonish everyone uh, uh, to go write uh, of sugar plum fairies, if, if such is your inclination. Uh, and I will tell you, dear friends, that you find what you're looking for always. So look for amazing stuff and you will find it. Uh, we will see you in just a few days. Until then... Jingle your bells all the way home. Stay cool. Be frosty. Jingle your bells. Yeah, that's that's, wow, that's, that's a new cool. euphemism, isn't it? That is. We're gonna total rock that one. <laughs> um, but uh, be awesome, and and we will talk to you soon. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. <laughs> this episode is copyrighted 2012 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial Share Alike License. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or just send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.